Hello, everyone. This is Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe and the greatest living American writer. I welcome you to the Book and Film Globe podcast, the audio arm of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have a fine show as usual for you this week. Stephen Garrett will be here to talk to me about Dream Scenario, an absurdist Nicolas Cage comedy from a Scandinavian director about uh, midlife disappointment and dreams, and it's very funny, and I I recommend it pretty highly. We're also going to talk to Rachel Llewellyn about uh, Hallmark Christmas movies. Tis the season for Hallmark Christmas movies. It's almost always the season for Hallmark Christmas movies, and Rachel wrote a very funny piece dissecting them and making fun of them for us. But first, we're going to talk to contributor Robert Dean about Julia. I know we talked about a book called Julia a couple of weeks ago, but this is a very different Julia. It is a docu-series about the life of Julia Child, now airing in its second season on Max, and it's quite delightful. And Robert will be here after these interludes to talk to me about it. We did well today, Simkranai. It would be a feast. It'll be a night to remember. Well, that's disappointing. More blub than fish. You're a wonderful woman succeeding in a mediocre man's world. If you feel like a punching bag, you've never been punched, my dear. We sold in 12 more markets. Chicago, Philly. We want to bring the French chef over to CBS. But what are you going to say? Julia is going to take WGBH behind the scenes into the White House kitchen. Well, I feel like I'm a virgin all over again. Well, I was until a moment ago. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we talked about a book called Julia, which is a uh, an even more dystopian retelling of George Orwell's 1984, uh, told from the point of view of its female co-protagonist. This week, we're also talking about a cultural product called Julia, but this one is a lot cheerier and a lot a lot more uplifting. Uh, it is a, a, a Max biopic of Julia Child, of Chef Julia Child, and Robert Dean wrote about it for us, and he's here today to talk to me about Julia and Julia Child and America's love affair with Julia Child, as they say. Hello. Howdy. Howdy. So, yeah, you know, we have a lot of listeners who don't live in the United States or who aren't from the United States, amazingly enough. So hello to all of you. And so, you know, for you and I, you know, Julia Child is part of our DNA. You know, she was on TV when we were a kid. You know, we... Most people who enjoy food and cooking have her cookbooks or or several of her cookbooks. But you know, I don't I don't know if people in other countries really understand the incredible cultural influence she has. So maybe you can explain uh, to people a little bit who she is and and why she's important. Um, the thing about Julia Child that people don't necessarily we're so used to like turning on the Food Network when she's the one who created all that. Like there was nobody doing food television she's the one she created the whole genre she started on this in the 60s yeah in the 60s she in black and white she came on this show to promote she had gotten mastering the art of french cooking published and at that point cookbooks were just like an afterthought it was yeah that's nice you could do some cooking because cookbooks were still a very early on in the genre and when she released that, she needed to promote it. So she had the idea to go to WGBH in Boston. And then from there, she had the idea to start the show. And then after a successful visit and her and her husband, since they were middle-aged and fairly successful, 
decided to finance it themselves against the station's, you know, I wouldn't say better wishes. They were just kind of like, whatever, this crazy lady's going to do some cooking show and she's going to pay for the pilot herself. And then it turned out to be this smash success, which then she essentially taught America how to cook. And you got to remember, this is at a time when we didn't have garlic presses. We didn't know what coca vin was. We didn't know what duck confit was. Like America was still eating like post-World War II food. And anything that was brought back at that point was either from an immigrant or for somebody that was essentially stationed over from a war. Right. So she was sort of, as you you know, I should say maybe the mother sauce of all this food culture that we're just awash in now. I mean, American, you know, the food in the United States, if you can afford it, is amazing. You know, you have you have all kinds of food from all over the world and, you know, cooked at an extremely high level. And, you know, and it's constantly being cooked on TV. I mean, I, I'm always watching a food competition show. And, you know, in fact, Chopped, which is one of my favorite uh, cooking competitions, is currently in to go along with this TV show, Julia, on Max, they're having a Julia Child-themed cooking competition. They have the, it looks like the old set from her, uh, her the French Chef show, and you know they're showing clips of her show, and people are having to cook dishes that are inspired uh, by Julia Child. Isabella Rossellini, who uh, plays Julia's cooking instructor on the Julia show, is um, one of the judges. So, you know, there's her influence... Uh, you know, it's pervasive. And, and I think the show on HBO has revived it again. Yeah, it's amazing what these things can do for the cultural lexicon. And she deserves to be in that conversation completely, because what's funny is I haven't seen that show. I like Chopped. I just haven't seen it. But I guarantee you, when people do it, they keep talking about the quality of her recipes. That's always the thing that comes back, is there's a guy on YouTube who basically started at the beginning of mastering the French art of cooking, and still he's like these recipes are just perfect. Well, and there was a, there. I mean, there was the there was the that movie Julie and Julia that came out uh, a few years ago. There that very extremely the woman who wrote the book and, and did the blog and ended up being having the movie based on turned out to be kind of a, an, an annoying egomaniac, but she did that as well. And now we're having another wave of kind of you know it's like it's like the Julia Child you know influence do, doesn't stop. I will say about the recipes, you know, they are impeccable, but boy, boy, they are rich. You know, if you're a middle-aged man with some lactose problems, maybe a little gluten intolerance, you know, you got to really search for something to eat there that's not going to make you um, uncomfortable. Her beef bourguignon stands the test of time. I've made that one. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I have no doubt. I mean, she, she, you know, she learned at, you know, she learned in France from the best. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to see sort of French cooking kind of making a little comeback because it's it was been been replaced by like Asian and Asian fusion and Mexican and, and, you know, Italian to some extent. But let's talk about the show a little bit. You seem to really enjoy the, this. Uh, it's this, They're on the second season of this Julia Child biopic. And you seem to think that it you know, pays her legacy uh, honor and it's entertaining. It's a very good show. I mean, the cast is phenomenal. But one of the things that I think rings true is everything sucks right now. Everybody's kind of really bummed out in their own. Everybody, most people I know are not having the world's best time right now. What's nice about that show is it serves as like a salve. It's not heavy. It's not, there is no like, oh man, here it comes game of Thrones moment where somebody's going to die. It's really just kind of this sweet show that you can kind of turn it on and just let go. You're not waiting for some hairpin turn or some dark plot twist a la Black Mirror. It's 
very saccharine. And you know what? I kind of love that right now because as everything is kind of bleak for most people, it serves as something that you're like, oh, this is a good little piece of candy. And I think B.B. Newworth is great on it. Uh, David Hyde Pierce is great. The whole cast is very, very good and very convincing. They just feel like characters from the 60s without trying too hard. Well, let's let's say this too. Like, you know, The French Chef in its heyday was aired in the 60s and 70s. And those were those were bleak times as well. So maybe um, that show and Julia's cooking kind of served the same function, right? Like, you know, we often turn to, well, this is a, this is a, uh, you know, sort of dramedy, light dramedy about, you know, the early days of TV food culture, but we often turn, I find myself turning to food TV when I don't want to watch the news or when I don't, when I don't want to like deal with heavy Oscar bait movies, you know, I'll watch, you know, MasterChef or Hell's Kitchen or Chopped or, or, you know, any number of cooking shows just to sort of uh, put my brain on something a little more optimistic. Yeah, there are just certain food personalities and the idea of cooking brings comfort. It's the idea of when you're sad, what do you want? You want your mom's soup. And if you can't, your mom's not around anymore. It's something that you think about. And I think food has that power to it. There's something about eating that we are drawn to if it's good tacos, if it's a late night cheeseburger after the bar, there's just always the power of eating that really truly makes us, it's a, it's, we're at our most human. You know, and the thing I like about uh, Julia Child, and I will admit that I, you know, I'm currently on my, a max hiatus. I kind of go in and out of different uh, streaming services, but I'm going to watch it because I do love food TV. But the thing I like about Julia Child is, you know, she has a personality and the show has some quirks, but it's essentially one person cooking or unless she was doing a show with Jacques Pepin then it was two people cooking you know the thing about these food competition shows is there's a lot of people and there's a lot of cooking and they're being judged whereas when you know Julia you know drops uh drops something in the kitchen she just says oops and you know picks it back up and then it keeps going and that's what a lot of that's what we all do when we cook right yeah I mean it, it's that's what one of the things that is highlighted about how free and loose she was and how she was willing to make a joke and how to make jokes about everything, which I think is entirely needed. Again, I think that because she was just so loosey-goosey about so much, we kind of see that in ourselves and it doesn't feel so serious because you're not, no one's screaming at her that she didn't make the plate look beautiful. She just wanted to put good food for people to be able to make it. All right. Well, Julia Child is back in fictional form on Max's Julia, and you can also watch these episodes of Chopped if you have a streaming service of Chopped. There's a kind of a fun Julia Child-themed cooking competition going on. And you also can just, uh, you know, pick up one of her cookbooks and try to make the duck a l'orange or some French onion soup or uh, some chocolate mousse or, as Bobby recommended, the beef bourguignon. You might might have a good meal and you might uh, get away from your problems for a few hours. I was going to say, if you've got PBS, you can, the streamer of that has every Julia Child episode on it. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing is that these, you can still learn how to cook from Julia Child, which is amazing considering that those shows, a lot of them were made 50, 60 years ago. So uh, it's a cultural legacy worth celebrating, and we are celebrating it yet again. Robert Dean, Bobby, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, let's, uh, let's go get some French food sometime soon. Yeah, I would love that. I am completely down with eating snails and outside of brains, kidneys, and livers, which I've had enough of, everything else is on the table for me. I'll, we'll, uh, we'll consume all other body parts. Thank you so much. 
Take it easy. Paul, you've been on my mind recently. Yeah? Because you keep popping up in my dreams. You don't do anything, you're just there. Have you been dreaming about me? Have I been dreaming about you? Yeah. You know, fame can come with some less desirable side effects. You should be prepared for that. Maybe we should cool this thing off. What? What do you mean? It's embarrassing. Which part? I'll, uh, guess I'll see you in my dreams. <laughs> it's weird, Stephen Garrett. I, I mean, I, I kind of hate to even admit this, but I had a dream about you last People night. People say that. People say that. Yeah, I had a dream about you, and I dreamt that we were discussing the new uh, Nicolas Cage film, Dream Scenario, <laughs> which, which is actually what we're doing right now. So um, it's, it's very strange, very strange. But uh, Dream Scenario is a film that is in theaters now and uh, it played at some film festivals, which is where you saw it and I saw it as we're talking. Uh, at least I think I did. Or maybe I dreamt that I saw it at the Alamo Draft House yesterday. Um, and, and here it is. It's kind of a comedy dream scenario, but I, I was sort of surprised at how serious it turned in the, sort of, in the second half. Like this was not just a jolly film about an absent-minded professor entering people's dreams. Yeah, it gets dark. It gets dark, and I mean, I, I, and I said this in the review, the less you know, the better I feel. I don't know how much you uh, knew before going in. I tried to be, uh, you know, descriptive, but not too oversharing. I saw the trailer like 85 times. Um, <laughs> well, so I, I, I knew the premise, to say the least, but I didn't really see where it was going. And it sort of turned into like a, um, almost like a Black Mirror episode. Yeah. Sort of in the, in the, in the back third, which, which I think may have been, you know, the point, but you know, I thought it was interesting. We won't give too much away, but you know, Nicolas Cage plays essentially, you know, is yet another uh, in, in our long line of academic losers. That seemed, <laughs> this right? is the season for academic losers. This and the uh, holdovers. Yeah, he reminded me to some extent of, of yeah Paul Giamatti and the holdovers, except he did not smell like fish. But he was like this bald, you know, he's a professor of evolutionary biology, but he can't. You know, he's, he's, he doesn't publish. He, he's, he's just kind of a dipshit who works at an elite <laughs> university in Boston and lives in a ni- nice house with a lovely wife. Yeah, I was about to say he's got a he's got a he's married. He's got kids. They seem to think he's a bit of a joke, but they don't hate him. You know, he seems like a befuddled uh, sort of but good natured guy. He's an he's an, an, an I wouldn't know he's an ordinary man because he's such a he's like he's a very NPR man. Yeah. You know, he NPR tote bag man, but he's not a bad person. But he um, the premise is that suddenly he starts appearing in uh, people's dreams, just kind of hanging out and standing around. But that's the key, right? He's literally he's not participating. He's just. Not even spectating. He's just wandering through and happens to be there. Which is how he is in his life. <laughs> which is how he is in his life, which is kind of genius. But, you know, and I guess we shouldn't give too much away, but as um, the movie evolves and he starts becoming more of an active participant in society because this makes him famous, um, his his actions in the dreams change. They do, yeah, and he changes as well, and so yeah, well, exactly, exactly, yeah. So his his actions in the dreams, you know, mirror his uh, psychic state, right, which becomes more fraught as it goes along. I mean, he's already a bit fraught at the beginning. He's he's a he's kind of low key bitter that he's not been published. He wants to write not a book but like a monograph, right, on like ants, or yes. so then he's got a colleague who already did that, and so he's 
angry that he kind of she stole his ideas, I guess, but not really. Um, he's just an unhappy guy that, you know, for for better, for worse, I think. I mean, I, I there's a part of me that relates to certainly where he is in his life. I'm sure other people will find him uh, familiar, if unsettling. I think he is misguided in the sense of what he thinks is going to make him happy. And this movie is a perfect illustration of how, I mean, you could say it's for the TikTok generation or for the meme generation or whatever, social media. This is a movie about the toxicity of social media. But I think it's more than that. I think it's just generally about if you rely on other people to make you happy, you were never going to be happy. You need to come to a sense of peace and grace within yourself that makes you accept where you are in your life and makes you understand this is it and you need to own it and you need to express some sort of uh, stability with that idea, if not happiness. (laughs) That's life, man. That's life. So there's a lot of funny satire of the TikTok generation and of Instagram influencers and of, you know, sleazy product placement types. Um, But you're right. At the core, it's kind of a Gen X midlife crisis movie. There is a real funny sequence where he goes, I think he goes to New York. Nicolas Cage's character goes to New York to meet with a um, a PR agency run by Michael Sarah and Kate Berlant. They're called, it's called Thoughts, Thoughts, Thoughts. <laughs> what is thoughts. <laughs> Very funny. It is. Very funny. And Michael Sarah is extremely funny and, and he knows what he's doing. And I mean, I got to say, like, I don't want to give too much away, but there is like an extreme, the sort of the major set piece in the film is like a, is like a weird sex scene. It is. It's fantastic. <laughs> you know, between uh, Nicolas Cage and one of the empl- employees at the agency. And it's like, really, like, it plays out. Like, it, it takes his time. To play play out that that quote unquote dream scenario milks and it, it milks it literally hilarious and pathetic hilarious and pathetic exactly I mean that's the that's the uh, should be the, what's on the poster you know dream scenario hilarious and pathetic it that is literally that's the movie in a nutshell that scene and you know for her to have basically her dream be a wet dream about him um, is fantastic. And of course you recreate any dream scenario in your life. It's never going to work out think the way you want it to be or the way you hoped it would be. You know, it's just life is life. You know, this guy, uh, Christopher Borgley, who uh, wrote and directed it, his, his movie before this was, it was called sick of myself, which was again, that same sort of thing. These people chasing, uh, in a very petty way, some sense of happiness refracted through other people's attention and some semblance of celebrity, but it it literally ends is he, up. Is he a foreign director? The, the name's Christopher Borgley. Does not. He's Norwegian. Yeah. Yeah. Cre- I'm sorry, Christopher yeah. Borgley. Yeah. It has. Better? Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. But because the movie has kind of an arch arch European sense of humor, like this is. Yes. I mean, it's it's set in the United. It's set in the U.S. It obviously, you know, it it is in English, and the characters are all American uh, except for a brief sequence at the end, but, uh, but it, but it has kind of an arch Euro- European tone to it. And it's very like, look, I mean, this is not a big hit. This is a very art house film, you know, and it's Nicolas Cage, you know, delivering another one of his lunatic art house performances. There are plenty of moments, especially in the second half where he contorts his face and screams and does crazy shit, which is what people like to see Nicolas Cage do in movies. <laughs> but, you know, for for a long stretch of it, he's playing like a total beta male, which is a, a bit off, you know, book for him. Uh, it's great to see him toned down and goofy and it's kind of square. He's fantastic. He's fantastic. Oh, it just reminded me of when he played uh, Charlie Kaufman in Adaptation, you know. Uh, it's that same sort of... Although even that was a bit more of a kind of... Uh, I don't know, even that guy had a bit more agency and and kind of 
like macho angst. This is just completely neutered, this guy. Yeah. This movie does owe a lot of its DNA to uh, uh, adaptation and uh, being John Malkovich. You know, there's definitely like, you can, there's echoes of those. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of Spike Jones. Yeah. Totally. So I don't know. I mean, I I, I, cert- I enjoyed it. I, I, I found myself uh, thinking about it uh, and dreaming about it last night. <laughs> I dreamed that I was Nicolas Cage watching a movie about Nicolas Cage. Yeah, and the alt-right turn it takes towards the end, which I think is hilarious, where they kind of like, he puts out a book and it's translated in another language as I am your nightmare or something, right? <laughs> right, yeah. I can That I can relate to. <laughs> Highly relatable. <laughs> I, I was delighted. I was delighted. This was a delightful movie. I, it really unexpected. I've never seen anything like it. Um, it just tickled my tummy. Yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say delightful i mean you know you know i uh breakfast breakfast at tiffany's is delightful but this this was it was like enjoyable and thought-provoking and there were you know there's some really funny set pieces in it and uh, you know and and it had a very um wistful ending i found and and i i liked that as well ari aster is a producer on this which is not surprising at all either i mean it definitely shares that sort of angst and that sort of delirium about life and and where you fit in you know, I de- I enjoyed it way more than I enjoyed Bo is Afraid, though. Oh, yeah. No, this is a lot sharper. It's a lot shorter, you know, short, sharp, shocked, as Michelle Shocked would say. <laughs> Good God. That is the Gen Xiest reference I've ever heard. Is that a Gen X reference? Come on. Exactly. Um, no, I was going to say I, I take I take umbrage with you saying Breakfast at Tiffany's is delightful. That movie is about a whore and a gigolo, unsurprisingly not finding love. And I, I'm always shocked that people are like, oh, what a delightful movie. And I'm like, no, these people are being paid to like have sex with strangers. Fine. Singing in the rain is delightful. How about that? <laughs> there you go. There's no whoring in that movie. I no, that is the most delightful movie ever made. Dream Scenario is not, but it is very good. And it is in theaters and uh, pro- probably very soon on an, a, a streaming service near you. Uh, Stephen and I to um, uh, Gen X men with various levels of disappointment and where they ended up uh, recommended. <laughs> Except for this conversation, man. I have no regrets. This is a, this is a dream come true. Yeah, well, literally. <laughs> it's Christmas season, my dudes, and the Christmas content is coming out on Book and Film Globe, we published a, re- a review of something called A Christmas Bestiary, which is a book by Fantagraphics where uh, they, they do uh, illustrations about you know, famous European Christmas monsters like Krampus and other beasts from Iceland. And apparently there's a lot of Christmas monsters uh, in Europe. And uh, the United States uh, and Canada have their own Christmas monsters in the form of Hallmark uh, Christmas movies on the Hallmark Channel, uh, and it's, it is a, it's a plague. It's an infection that has uh, gone from the Hallmark Channel to Lifetime and to Netflix. And Rachel Llewellyn has written about the Hallmark Christmas movie uh, this year for us on Book and Film Globe, and she's here today to talk to me about Hallmark Christmas movies. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me on. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you. So <laughs> you uh, you have, a, I don't know if you have an obsession with with the Hallmark Christmas movie, but you point out in your piece that, like, you know, this is, this is a phenomenon that has just been metastasizing in our culture for quite some time. And it's reached, like, this new level. And they have, like, there's a new... Uh, Young people, like eight, the 18 to 40 demographic is ironically appropriating the Hallmark Christmas movie. 
Yeah, it's such an interesting dynamic to uh, observe and to read about, and especially to write about. I mean, Hallmark is, it's been around for 100 years selling us greeting cards. And, you know, they've really sunk a lot of marketing knowledge into figuring out how to uh, extrapolate our <laughs> the best of our human nature and sell it back to us. So they, it it was a pretty easy transition to their television network, which is right now number one most watched entertainment cable network, beating out Fox News, you know HGTV. Uh, I, I guess some of their Fox News. You think there'd be a little viewership overlap there? You ne- you never know. <laughs> yeah, everyone loves Christmas. <laughs> I mean, not me, but everyone everyone else. <laughs> Yeah, no matter what your feelings about it, really, I think it's it's kind of going to attract some energy and some focus interacting with it online just because you, you can't really avoid them, you know, and especially with, you know, all the digital driven tech that we now have, you know, we're now abstracting and interacting with the, you know, the best and the worst of our culture with just a flood of information and we're kind of required to adapt I guess kind of a polarity when we're absorbing or consuming entertainment or media, where we're kind of drawn to extremes. I mean, our, our brains kind of evolved this ability to do this a long time ago with information. Just pick out the stuff you need and kind of passively consume and, and discard the rest. So, all right, that's all very interesting. Um, but what does that have to do <laughs> with Hallmark Christmas movies? Is my question because it's the worst and it's the best and so we love to hate it and we hate to love it and this kind of polarity of emotion really just draws a lot of energy and a lot of feedback online i mean there's just a whole subculture dedicated to interacting with this this schlock this uh ridiculous you know storylines with these emotional and narrative hooks that are just lego block simple and yet they're evoking you know these really complicated conversations and incredible viewership so it's a phenomenon that's worth noticing and worth talking about. So, so what what are some of the um, sort of uh, the threads, the memes, so to speak, that uh, <laughs> in these Christmas movies that that you respond to? Like, what what are some of the things that like you find uh, you know hilarious and or attractive? Well, it's I, I really love all the cleverness that like again the younger demographic is really bringing to this. I guess, phenomenon. Just, there's a great SNL skit, I think you had linked it on my piece, uh, you know, where <laughs> it's just kind of riffing off of the classic storylines. People will screenshot or do stitches when they're watching Hallmark movies of like especially ridiculous things, you know. You mean the the, the SNL skit where James Franco <laughs> is Santa, <laughs> but he's, he's also a handsome, also pr- a handsome, I, yeah, han- pr- Prince Santa, <laughs> handsome ice cream. Yeah, there's always like you know, th- there was a Lindsay Lohan Christmas movie last year. There's always amnesia. There's always the small town hunk. Um, people are always people seem to always be magazine editors. Yeah, there's there's a gazebo in every one of these things. Yeah, yeah. and they have ridiculous, you know. Uh, professions like on house hunters where they're like i'm a i'm an artisanal butterfly you know collector or whatever. yeah they're just really improbable and they have such stable lives and you know they live by themselves and stuff so right right away you've got gen z and you've got millennials raising an eyebrow because it's the kind of passive classism we recognize that and we kind of poke fun at it in sort of this, you know, our own bitter way. But it's hilarious. This really creates some of the best Internet humor that that I've encountered lately. And, you know, when we're all wrapped up with all this kitsch and stuff, it's really kind of a relief to be able to have that for the holidays where your alternative is just this really saccharine, sincere, you know, 
commercialized Christmas where people are arguing over Starbucks cups and saying happy holidays versus Merry Christmas or happy Hanukkah. It's the whole thing's a, it's a circus. It's so funny. It's so funny. Like I got, a, I got a attacked by some random dude on my Facebook feed uh, last week for, you know, making fun of this Atlantic cover uh, where, where people were worried about, um, Donald Trump coming back as president and there's like, you know, lots of essays and whatever. That's nothing to do with Hallmark Christmas, but somebody attacked me for being, you know, for hiding behind this shield of hip irony. And I'm like, well, first of all, that is literally, you know, how I made, you know, my, my, my meager nut. And I feel like, you know, it's okay to hide behind a shield of hip irony when you're talking about Christmas movies, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, especially because they're so cookie cutter and they just keep on coming. And, it, you know, there there are some interesting dynamics going on with that. Uh, you know, you got other networks like Netflix. They're producing their own original, you know, content. Um, you know, Virgin River, one of their flagship shows is doing a couple of special Christmas episodes. So, yeah, like the, the cheese runs thick. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a horrific um, there's always like the Santa Clauses versus the other Santa Clauses. There's a horrific uh, Eddie Murphy Christmas movie on Amazon Prime called Candy Cane Lane, where he basically like has you know a house full of tiny elves in his basement, and uh, it's just it's like it, it never ends. Well, and then there's the um, this has been driving me crazy. I don't know. I don't know if you watch sporting events, but there's this commercial that airs during these the NBA games and during football of uh, John Travolta dressed as Santa Claus walking down the street uh, to the tune of staying alive, staying alive, like he did in um, in Saturday Night Fever. And then he goes to a disco and dances his his uh, his Saturday Night Live Fever routine dressed as Santa Claus. And I'm just like, what are we doing here? That sounds It's really nothing sacred. That, oh, it's, 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 it's bad. Our culture is eating itself, Neil. It really is just becoming a self-referential Ouroboros, I, I would say. <laughs> and it's it's really like we just see... <laughs> We just see like the, you know, the, the devotional aspect clashing with like the secular aspect of these celebrations, you know, keeping in mind the context of perilous events unfolding around the world. There's just so much contrast to human behavior. And Hallmark really has learned to capitalize on the, that escapist, you know, element. And I think it's interesting to see those those younger demographics responding to that with its own kind of brand of like cynical, like realism. Have you ever have you ever found um, seasonal love? Uh, with a handsome sweater wearing stranger, Rachel? <laughs> no, there is a reason they call it cuffing season. I don't know if you've heard that term. It's no, where no. Uh, folks will get together and pair up more so around the holidays than they would uh, any other time because they want companionship during those family celebrations. So it's like a whole thing. For Jews, it only lasts eight nights. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Well, it's interesting because, you know, everybody talks about how Hallmark's stories are really white, they're really straight, and they just got, in 2020, uh, a woman named Wanya Lucas overseeing the CEO of their media arm. And she's overseen the Hallmark programming since 2020. Um, but unfortunately, we've seen ratings kind of falling. As big as Hallmark is, their ratings are kind of going down over the last three years of her tenure. So who's to say how the viewers are responding to these initiatives? Um, but it's in, just kind of interesting. Go work for Christmas, go broke for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I won't 
say I won't point out that that's the only dynamic at play. I won't say that, but it's just I an think intriguing. It's, I think it's know. a lot of competition. I think it's the fact that yeah. like, there's, mm-hmm. just, there's just you know there are just so many. Uh, pl- I mean, there's certainly no lack of Christmas content. <laughs> it's not going to stop anytime soon. So I'm just going to enjoy again, you know, kind of all of that kind of sarcastic interplay back with it. Just get a good laugh out of it, and just kind of sit there and watch them with my mom and clown on them where and how I can MST3K style. Yeah, our um, our holiday view. Well, we watch Elf every year, and then uh, maybe maybe the original animated How the Grinch Sold Christmas and a Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, and then um, the Yule Log, the burning Yule Log on Netflix, uh, is, is often on. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 then and then the other day, uh, I, I was I don't know, I was playing online poker or something, and my wife Regina, turned, she turned on us. She's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch this uh, this uh, Christmas movie. It's got Amelia Clark in it. I'm like, oh no, don't do it, don't do it. It's gonna it's gonna be really bad. Anything that doesn't involve dragons and Amelia Clark is bad. And sure enough, you know, last Christmas. Was uh, was not a success. So, all right, it's it is Christmas season. Like I said, uh, you can you can watch endless Christmas content on the Lifetime Network, on the Hallmark Channel, on Netflix, on Amazon Prime, um, on, on maybe on Shutter. I don't know. Shutter is more of a Halloween network, but they might have some horror Christmas too. Uh, Rachel Llewellyn is our Hallmark correspondent. We're going to give you that title. Don't do that. <laughs> you have to only, from now on. You're only watching the Hallmark Channel. No more Rick and Morty for you, Rachel. Reporting from the gazebos of Snow Falls, Maine. All right. Thank you so much. (laughs) And happy holidays. All right. Thank you so much, Rachel Llewellyn. Hallmark Christmas movies are now available on the Hallmark Channel and the Lifetime Network and on every other network now and year-round, really. You can never get enough Christmas movies. I mean, I can never watch any of them, but some people can never get enough Christmas movies. Also, thanks to Robert Dean for talking to me about the Julia Child biopic. Uh, not biopic, it's like a mini series or a regular series that's airing on Max. It's a show about Julia Child, and uh, you should watch it. It's a lot of fun. And also, thanks for Stephen Garrett for making my dreams come true and talking to me about Dream Scenario, starring Nicolas Cage, which is now in theaters and soon will be on streaming. I hope you have enjoyed listening to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I hope you dream about it. I hope you read Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor of that fine site. I am the host of this fine podcast. Thank you so much for reading and listening and being you. And I will talk to you soon. Original Production.